0: Latter-day Contemplation is a podcast hosted by two Latter-day Saints who have found great value in experiencing God through walking a path of contemplation. The views expressed herein are our own.
1: Hello and welcome to Latter-day Contemplation. We're your hosts, Christopher Hurtado
0: and Riley Risto.
1: Latter-day Contemplation started as an exploration of contemplative practices from many traditions to enhance our discipleship of Jesus Christ. We're by no means experts in the topics we discuss. But what we have is an openness to questions, a hunger to discover truth wherever we can find it, and a desire to share in the transformative life of inner peace. We love that you've joined us, and we hope that you find value in this community.
0: Welcome back to Latter-day Contemplation. I'm Riley Risto. And I'm Christopher Hurtado. We've been talking about doing something on The Shadow for years just because we've always enjoyed the psychoanalytical side of this personal journey. And both of us interested in Jung. And we we all met, us three, and I'm informally introducing our, our friend here, Morgan Aldous, to the program. But we, we all three met on a site that's kind of dedicated to psychoanalysis in some respect. Anyway, we have decided to bring back Morgan Aldous to talk about this topic of the shadow and maybe some of the religious spiritual development path implications of looking into our own shadow and working on that. So Morgan, welcome to the program.
2: Thanks. It's great to be back.
0: Morgan, tell us a little bit about what you've been doing for about the last year since we had you on the program.
2: A lot of my own shadow work is still continuing, which you know we'll, we'll get into to what that means. It's been kind of a crazy year for me, though. I've just professionally, the job that I had, I was part of a layoff. But in that job, I kind of ended up in a, a professional coaching role. Now that I'm not in that job anymore, it's, it's parlayed into kind of doing coaching type things full time. And so a lot of what we're going to be talking about today about shadow work and stuff, this is actually what I do professionally in helping people to do in their own lives. So that's been my year is really just getting into this new role and kind of really finding my purpose in in helping people to do this kind of work that I've come to love.
0: How did you come to love it? How how did it first start to influence you? And I, I don't want to go too deep in this and be as comfortable as you want in your response, but why psychology why jung what is it about it that sparked an interest in you
2: that is a good question for most of my life i was pretty miserable <laughs> like like a lot of people and my interest in psychology really started around 2015, 2016. I was, at the time, working a blue-collar job where I was flying around the country doing just these, these short little jobs, and when I was in the airport getting ready to go on one of these jobs, I realized that like I I needed something to listen to. I was out of stuff to listen to while I was working, and so I got on Facebook and just asked people for book recommendations. And somebody recommended this book by a psychologist named Nathaniel Brandon called The Six Pillars of Self-Esteem. I thought that sounded awful. I did not want to read a book that had self-esteem in the title. I definitely didn't want to be seen reading a book with self-esteem in the title. So it's a good thing it was an audio book. But for some reason, I just decided to read it. And it ended up being a very interesting, profound book about psychology and the subconscious and practical things you can do to access the subconscious. And that's really what started me on my interest in psychology. And I only later learned more about psychoanalytics and depth psychology and Carl Jung and the shadow and realized that I was doing shadow work, just not knowing that term because of the things that I was learning.
1: What is shadow work, Morgan?
2: Going back to Freud, A lot of the stuff that Freud taught has kind of fallen out of vogue, but he has had a lot of lasting contributions to psychology and to psychotherapy, more than most people realize, actually. The ever-controversial Jordan Peterson, he put it really well in one of his lectures. He says, you know, a lot of the stuff that Freud first elaborated on and first expressed became so obvious. It was just so obviously true that it was immediately absorbed into the culture, and we forget that He's the one that came up with it. So all that really stands out is all the weird stuff that Freud was wrong about.
1: Yeah, one of my mentors, a philosophy professor, taught me that Freud gave us the vocabulary to talk about ourselves. And so now we just all use that vocabulary without knowing you know, anything about Freud necessarily.
2: Yeah, yeah, I think that's a good way to put it. And so I wouldn't say that he discovered the subconscious or the unconscious mind, but he definitely popularized that idea. Then following in his footsteps, Jung went even deeper into understanding the subconscious, and he wanted to understand the structure of the subconscious. And so this term, the shadow, is what Jung called anything that gets repressed or suppressed into the subconscious. And there's kind of a misunderstanding that it's all of our like bad, nasty, evil impulses that our conscious ego rejects but that's not actually true. It's anything that the conscious ego rejects, which oftentimes is a lot of our virtues too. And I think we talked about this last year when you had me on to talk about alchemy. The gold is buried in with the sludge. And so that's what shadow work is all about. It's about going in to your your subconscious mind and discovering what's in there and owning all of it, all of the bad stuff, quote unquote, bad stuff, and all of the good stuff, all of the virtues that we've also been caused to repress or suppress because of trauma or or whatever.
1: I was going to say, it sounds like you're panning for gold, but maybe not panning for gold, because that sounds like now you're still going to reject something and you're saying you're accepting all of it.
2: Yeah, yeah, absolutely.
1: So it's not panning for gold.
2: Not panning for gold. That okay. may not be the best analogy. <laughs> okay. But like you said, Christopher, it's it's about owning all of it when I'm coaching people through the shadow work process, one of the things that I always say that seems to be pretty helpful, it's been helpful for me, is just understanding that anything separate from you has the power to possess you. The example that I give for that is all of us in our adult lives at some point, whether it's at work or dealing with a spouse or dealing with your child or whatever, you catch yourself throwing a tantrum. And when you come out of it a few minutes later, you're like, wow, I'm not sure what came over me, but I just acted like a child. (laughs) From the perspective of shadow work, that's exactly what you did. There were aspects of you as a child that were not accepted by your teachers, by your parents, by your friends, whatever it was. And so those things get stuffed down into the unconscious, into the shadow, ready to spring up and possess you when the conditions are right. And so the whole idea of shadow work is to take all of that and understand it so that it doesn't spring on you and surprise you.
1: I love how you said it possesses you, right? Because you gave us an example of someone possessed. It sounds like other people play a role then too. It's not just things that, I mean, I think ultimately I'm the one who has to push these things, you know, into the subconscious, but other people have something to do with it.
2: Yes, absolutely. That's usually the impetus for us suppressing or repressing these things is we find out that they are somehow unacceptable to other people.
0: And in a collective sense, which is something that Jung was cognizant of, and this was maybe the ultimate goal for him was to address the the collective aspect of, of these repressed desires and whatnot that you're, you're identifying. There's two ways in which other people influence what goes into our what Robert Bly called the black bag that we drag behind us. One way is not always in a negative way, but like you grow up and your parents tell you, oh, this is good and this is bad. And so immediately you take the bad thing and you throw it in the bag. You push that out of yourself. But the second way in which other people influence this is generationally, right? And I think this is something that Jung addressed when he talked about the collective unconscious is All those things that almost from a biological standpoint become encoded in you over generations of cultures that have been culturally suppressing certain aspects of their personality, of their ego, and their public persona, I guess is what Jung would say. There's a couple ways in which what ends up in that shadow or that bag, that black bag we drag behind us, there's a couple ways that other people influence what goes in there. And there's like level one of addressing your shadow is obviously the the more immediate cause of the the shadow, meaning, you know, it might be your parents or those around you that are forcing things back there. But the ultimate goal, it seems from a Jungian perspective, is to take individual transformations, add them all together through a more collective identification of how shadows become what they are and over time be able to generationally heal, collectively heal as a result, right?
2: Yes, absolutely. The generational stuff is is huge, especially like your main audience, people that are part of the Latter-day Saint tradition. There's a lot of cultural baggage that comes with any close-knit group, including ours. And so there's a lot of shadow work we need to do, you know, relating to our own faith tradition.
1: So now other people are coming in in another way too, so it's not just that I'm doing shadow work on myself. I'm doing it in some sense for Riley says generationally, so this could be something to do with my own family, but it's also collective in the sense that, as you mentioned, Morgan, I have my faith community, and it has its own shared issues in that way. And then all of us are connected, right? Mm -hmm.
0: What you're identifying there is sort of like a symbolic representation of of the cross, where you have the generational stuff on, on a vertical axis, and then you've got your community stuff on a horizontal axis. And being able to heal personally, individually, from both the individual repression and suppression that becomes your shadow and the the generational stuff, being able to heal from both of those has an impact in both of those directional axes.
1: So here's another definition of the shadow that I've heard. And this is actually my son's own understanding. And this is Christian, who used to edit this podcast. He's now busy with school and work. And we have Michael now. Thank you, Michael. So Christian understood Jung in his reading to say something like that what we call Satan, with a capital S, is actually a part of ourselves, that shadow self, and that that has to be integrated. And we haven't talked about integration. I don't think we've used that word yet. But we have to integrate that and not reject it. And I think that's what you meant, right? When we go into the subconscious, the things that have been repressed, the things that have been suppressed, we're now going to accept them. You say, this is what's meant by integration, right? And what do you think about this idea that this is Satan?
2: Yeah. Yeah. I think that there's a lot to that. This is a lot of what Carl Jung's understanding was of myths and religious stories and narratives. Is there an actual character named Satan that is influencing me? Maybe there is. But it's also just very useful to consider, from Jung's perspective, that all of these characters in our religious texts represent aspects of ourselves. Even the Satan himself represents part of our personality that needs to be understood and accepted and brought in because as long as we, again, keep that part of ourselves separate from us, it has the power to possess us. And of course, that brings a whole bunch more weight <laughs> with it when we're talking about the character Satan. But yeah, absolutely. It's it's really all about that.
0: So I saw a Christian argument basically trying to kind of denigrate Jung and his method Essentially by saying that why would we want to invite darkness into our consciousness? And, and you could translate that to mean into our bodies, into our spirits, into our souls, whatever. Why would we want to invite that darkness? And so one of the misunderstandings I think of that is essentially ignoring the fact that it's already there. It's essentially saying that darkness is out there and we're accommodating the invitation of darkness within. When in reality, it's like we're kind of doing the opposite. We're recognizing it within so that we can deal with it outwardly. I think this is actually related, and you were talking about Satan earlier and and the recognition of what Satan is or represents or who he is or whatever. The relevant part for us is that role of an accuser, that role of a Satan, and the various things that he does to sort of trip us up. And of course, I'm personifying it, but nevertheless, the point stands that there's certain things that this Satan character will do to try to throw us into various forms of neuroses. And I think this began right at the beginning of all creation, even if this is an allegory, it doesn't matter. The point stands is that the very first interaction that this Lucifer Satan figure has with Adam and Eve is one of trying to separate the existence of all creation into its binary opposites, its polarities. And this idea, which we kind of take for granted as part of like our theology or whatever about good and evil, virtue, vice and all that stuff and cutting these things into these binary extremes, I think is kind of an introduction from Lucifer's standpoint for Adam and Eve to enter into this cult of binary thinking and the extreme damage that that does to a psyche to separate those two so completely as if to almost cause us to throw those things into the shadow bag behind us because we don't want to confront them. And so I think this actually, at least from an allegorical standpoint, is is kind of the basis of a lot of our psychological maladies is this idea that, you know, we can functionally live without acknowledging the existence of these shadow elements within us. It's so extremely compartmentalizing. And ignoring that part of our own existence—that that in and of itself is some sort of neurosis.
1: One of Freud's other students, Lacan, who's a lesser-known follower of Freud, and one who parted with him—you know—a lot of people that followed Freud thought we need to do things the way Freud said, and it became like a dogma, right? This religion of Freud. Whereas Jung went off, even though his teacher disagreed with him, and he did his own thing, and Lacan did the same thing. But Lacan points out, I think, following Freud, that something like what Riley mentions happens. You see yourself in the mirror for the first time, maybe, and you think, that's me. But you're the one looking in the mirror, so which is you? And you just divided yourself into two. And this is kind of a problem, right? You have to reintegrate yourself into one integrated self, right?
0: if I can address your one point about the, the difference of, you know, kind of what has been described as the awareness of awareness, right? There's a perceiver, obviously, and there's that image out there. So there's two separate things. I mean, this, in some respect, has been addressed in Buddhism a little bit when, when they talk about the Maya or the delusion. It's like, which one of those is reality? Which one of those is real?
1: Yeah. And to your other point, Riley, earlier you said something that made me think, the things have already entered into us. The thing that we're talking about examining isn't something where we're going to allow some darkness within, in, into us. We already did that. And really, if we're not in a dualistic mindset, there is no darkness. There just is whatever it is. But what happened is something occurred that we wanted to stop. No, don't. But it's too late because if we already perceived it, it's already within us. And so it's too late. And so now we say stop. And that essentially says, stay stuck within me. Well, that's an interesting take on it because I think it relates
0: back to that garden myth again. When they partake of that fruit of the tree and that essentially opens their eyes to the full possibility of, of humanity, both, you know, both extremes and everything in between. That essentially becomes the great test. Just knowing that those things all exist out there. And then over your lifetime is that transformation or that transformative process of integration, which brings all things back together again. The idea that Zion is, you know, one heart and one mind and whatnot it is a, it's almost a description of, of what the ideal is for the individual transformation as well to go from a bunch of disconnected parts into a fully integrated whole and becoming one and unified. And I see what Satan is doing with Adam and Eve as kind of like the opposite of that work of unification.
2: Mm. Just to be devil's advocate in this conversation, for you know the average Latter-day Saint that hasn't been much exposed to the concept of non-duality, what do we say to the objection that, well, if you don't delineate between good and evil, you're going to end up doing evil? How do you live a virtuous life if you have eliminated virtue as a category?
0: I can think of several instances and these would be hypothetical but they probably have existed over time of when doing the quote unquote right thing has really harsh outcomes for other people or vice versa. You know, life isn't black and white. We we really want it to be and that's the way in which we kind of measure grades or degrees between the what we might, you know, see as polar opposites, but in reality living this life challenges you to think deeper than just black and white. Because if that's your whole approach to everything, it's going to get thrown for a loop when you're confronted with a really challenging, difficult circumstance that doesn't seem to match up with black and white so easily.
1: As an avid reader who really stopped reading fiction a long time ago as a, as a child and has gotten back into it recently, I really see the value in novels in creating this space where these kinds of not-so-black-and-white issues can be explored.
0: I've been a fan lately, especially of, of reading Russian novels, and they do such a great job of outlining a circumstance or situation that, that does not conform to a binary, or doesn't at least make a binary judgment about something convenient. You really have to struggle and work through the ethical outcomes of various decisions, and it's, it's difficult, and I think they do a good job of outlining that.
1: Yeah, one of the most interesting things I've ever read, and I wish I had kept track of it. I, I don't know how I'd find it again. It was a, a long-form article. And again, if you're going to go into nuance, it has to be long-form. If it's not black and white, it's got to be a long article. And this article was dealing with people with mental health problems, such as a guy who shuts himself up in his house and won't talk to anybody. And it becomes this problem of, okay, he has the right to his own decisions, but then what if it affects other people? And I'm not bringing that in, right, but it's in the article that there's family, there's neighbors, there's questions of this person's safety, there's all these issues that make the issue complicated. And if, if you want to be a libertarian and, and say, oh, he has his right and whatever, but then it's just not always that black and white. And this article did a great job of bringing that out and making it, and it has no answers, right? It's just exploring the question of what do we do with these people?
0: It seems to me, and this is maybe kind of branching off in another direction, but like, one of the dangers of this, this binary understanding is that when people start living that you could call it somewhat extreme orthodox way of living, they frequently become judgmental. And this, this was a problem that, you know, Jesus harped on a lot. I mean, he was always going after the Pharisees as hypocrites and he would call them a whited sepulcher that was very pretty on the outside, but dead on the inside. And that's because they hadn't yet confronted their own capacity for evil or, or sometimes not even evil. Again, as Morgan says, your shadow can contain anything that's been repressed. But nevertheless, these folks were pretty on the outside, you know, and clean. And then on the inside were, you know, they're the place of death. And, And the same thing goes for the whole moat and beam example where, you know, the, the Pharisees are condemning people for what essentially are specks in their eyes. And, and he's saying, we'll pull the, pull the beam out of yours first. Yeah. And, and these are, these are very much like examples of, of Jesus teaching people that they need to confront their shadow. Right.
2: Yeah. You know, that was Jesus's big critique of the pharisaical school was their sense of self-righteousness and that it was all about doing the outward appearances, but not truly experiencing this inner transformation.
1: Morgan, something came up there in what Riley said that hasn't come up in this conversation yet. Thinking of Jordan Peterson, Jordan Peterson says, and he's a Jungian, right? He says that he got into this work that's his life's work because he, he realized that the kind of evil that he saw in the 20th century with you know people like Hitler, Khmer Rouge, and you have Mao and Stalin and et cetera, right? It was quite the century he He realized that that capacity for evil was a part of him. It was in him, and it's in all of us. And he wanted to deal with that in some way. H- how does that fit into this shadow work conversation?
2: yeah, that's that's exactly it is the way that you know that you have a disintegrated shadow, and you're always going to to some extent, but to know that it's time for shadow work is when you encounter something that someone has done that is absolutely horrible, and say, oh, I could never. Well, yeah, you could, because people do. And that's what shadow work is all about. I've actually been watching the new drama on Netflix about Jeffrey Dahmer, and it is very difficult to watch. It's very well done, and that's why it's difficult to watch. But with this knowledge and and work that I've done with the shadow, it's been really interesting to watch. Before I did this work, I either would not watch it or watching it, I would be like, oh, he was a monster. Oh, this is horrible. Oh, oh, oh. But the perspective that I've gained from doing this work now as I've watched the show, I've thought I felt that way. I felt a desire to control people and all these other things. I've never obviously taken it to the point where I wanted to kill them and eat them. But the big part of shadow work is just coming to the understanding and realization that we are all capable of evil because that is a human capability. And the more we keep that reality separate, and the more we convince ourselves that we are incapable of that, that's when it's going to sneak up on us. But when you are fully aware of what you're capable of, then you're in a better place to choose not to.
1: Wow. I think we've kind of come full circle with this part of the conversation now. We can see what is meant by the by the shadow, and we can see why we would take this on, right? Why we would go into that, you know, dark space, right? Mm. Something
0: that's coming out of this for me is this idea that maybe tackling our shadow, even when we're only talking about capacity and not even about acting on it yet, but maybe tackling this, this shadow is a part of repentance. And if it is, I think that completely revolutionizes how we think about repentance and, and transformation. And the things that we take responsibility for, even when they're not yet even done, right? I mean, that's just an interesting thought that I had as you were talking about repentance and, and what does that mean about the gospel of repentance and the primacy of repentance in the gospel. What do you think, Morgan, that, that looking at repentance that way would do for your idea of the gospel?
2: Yeah, this really has become my understanding of repentance and my definition of repentance is having this experience where I am willing to confront the evil within myself and to bring it up to the light instead of bury it deeper, where it will only have more power to possess me when my guard's down. But bringing it up to the light and really having a a deeper understanding of who I am, what I'm capable of, and transforming into someone that simply chooses not to do those things with the full awareness that I totally could.
1: That it really is a choice, right?
2: Yeah, it really becomes a choice. And, you know, that's, that's a big thing that we talk about as Latter-day Saints is agency. A lot of times, you know, if we don't do our shadow work, we minimize our agency because then we're just subject to our subconscious repressed material. And it's not until we bring that up, sift through it, understand it, own it, that agency becomes even possible.
0: I think this opening up of the idea of repentance, it really kind of redirects us away from this sin and shame model or sin and justice model or whatever that we sort of operate under where it's all about the things that you actually do. Even though there's a myriad of things that you would like to do that you're not acting upon. It's sort of like what Jesus was talking about when he said, it hath been said of old that you shall not commit adultery. But then he redirects people, his disciples, to this idea that even if you're just lusting in your heart, you've already committed adultery. He's speaking to people who haven't integrated that aspect of their personality where they they desire and they lust. They're not addressing it. And that's part of this repentance model, which is just interesting because for so long, at least I'm having sort of a personal revelation here where so long... Repentance has only been necessary in reaction to some sin that I committed, that I committed an act, that I actually did something, had nothing to do with unacted upon ideas or thoughts or motivations within me that I should also repent of. So for me, it it kind of it increases the importance of repentance in the gospel plan to think of it this way. It's way more proactive than reactive. I'll say that, if nothing else.
1: Yeah, Absolutely. That really opened up something for me too, man. You don't have to have done something to need to repent. This process of repentance then becomes this process of, well, I mean, if we're going to use the vocabulary we've been using of, of shadow integration, right? And of becoming this whole person that has all of these things as a reality that's that's confronted and understood and accepted. And that choice, again, is is fully available and, and being made and used, right? That you're, you're using your agency.
0: The other thing I think this does is it sort of levels the playing field a little bit because there's so many people who are victims of circumstance and I'm not. Like I live in a very easy place and I have, life is fairly easy. And then there's a whole bunch of people who don't have those circumstances. And so it's almost the circumstantial stuff that puts them in a position of acting upon impulses that I share with them if that makes sense. It's like, okay, I'm in this position. I have this impulse. This person's in another position, has the same impulse, but feels like they have no choice about the matter, right? So it's the choice part that's taken away from them. Like for instance, you live in poverty and it's between stealing and feeding your family. I don't have to make that choice. By saying that, I'm really not even addressing the ability or the capacity that I have within me To sin for the purpose of feeding my family. Essentially, I have to admit my capacity or see my shadow, even if I'm not acting on it because I'm not in that other position. I need to be proactive about my repentance. Just because I'm not actually acting on all of these things doesn't mean the capacity isn't there. I'm, I'm trying to level the playing field between me and another person who's in tougher circumstances, essentially.
1: Yeah. You have just as much reason to repent as, as the other guy, right? Although it may be easier for him to see that you have to go out of your way as you're doing here live, right? I mean, it's happening and you're realizing this. Yeah. This reminds me of a book my daughter was assigned to read in her first semester of college. I read it with her, The Other Westmore. You guys heard of it? The Other Westmore. And the guy who wrote it, his name is Westmore. He doesn't realize until he does. And that's why he writes the book that there's this other Westmore. They're both growing up on the same streets of Baltimore during the crack epidemic, in the 80s and 90s and one of them the author has all of these you know accolades and successes and you know is the one writing the book and has this great career and the other one's in prison and at the beginning of the book Wes Moore says I don't mean to imply that the day that he killed that there was more than one victim on that day the only victim was the person killed and I thought after reading his book I thought I wonder how disingenuous he was being when he said that because the book does a really good job of subtly making things less black and white. And, and you wonder if there really was, if there really were two victims, right? If, if the other Westmore was also a victim of circumstance in some sense.
0: I found a quote the other day by Alexander Solzhenitsyn, and I'm going to paraphrase it because, well, it was long and I don't have it in front of me, but essentially what he's saying is he's like, I, I used to view, you know, robbers and murderers and all those people as being evil. And then I was put in a position of, of being punished for something I didn't do. He ended up in the gulags, right? And he said, it was only on a prison map that I started to understand and explore this idea that I had goodness in me, only on the prison floor. Because it was at that point that like all the circumstantial stuff was actually confronting him. Before that, when he was in his own privileged position relative to his new accused position, he didn't need to do that work. And so he didn't realize not only his capacity for evil, but his capacity for good. It was only in the prison cell when he was being punished for the bad that he understood the good, the capacity for good too. I thought that was interesting.
2: Yeah. And this discussion that we're having about circumstance, I think is really important because that's what really shows what people are capable of. So, you know, Riley, you talked about, you know, in the circumstances you find yourself, you never... in a position of having to steal to feed your family that's just something that doesn't occur to you and so i loved what you talked about about shadow work being preemptive repentance in the understanding that in those circumstances you would be capable of that and maybe what you would choose to do instead because you may wake up tomorrow and find yourself in that circumstance your wealth and security could be gone tomorrow by some means The easiest way for us to find our shadow, like we've kind of been talking about, is to look at what people do in circumstances that we don't find ourselves in. Because no one was a Nazi until they were. No one was a killing fields operator in Cambodia until they were. Until they were given that job and found themselves in that circumstance. And so shadow work is really the study of humanity. And it's a study of human capability. And understanding what any mortal is capable of, every mortal is capable of, to some degree or another. And so shadow work at its core is really just studying and understanding the mortal condition, accepting that, owning that that we are part of that, that we're not in any way separate from it, and then making our choices ahead of time, I think is a, a big part of it.:
0: I'm going to write down this part that shadow work is essentially preemptive repentance i I, I love that idea and approach to it. It drives home the point because there's really two ways to approach this, and I don't want to say only two, but there's the two that I'm thinking of right now. There's the the way of experience, and there's the way of, of observation. And the way of experience obviously is being in the situation and responding a certain way and feeling the feels and knowing that what you did was wrong and, and so forth, right? And the way of observation is essentially seeing someone else go through that process and recognizing the capacity within you, which is what you said, Morgan, right? Is seeing in a a Nazi sympathizer your capacity to also be a Nazi sympathizer because you're just not in that position yet. And so that is a great way to look at it. I think most people can relate to the idea that the things they have experienced that that taught them those lessons, they can be almost equated to observing other people make different mistakes and seeing your capacity in that.
1: This is very much contemplation. The observational aspect, even the experiential, but the the observational aspect is contemplative.
0: Mm. Yeah. You know, I picked out a couple examples where Jesus was pointing people out as, as being hypocrites, meaning to, you know, point out that they hadn't done their shadow work yet. Well, here's an example in Scripture of some actual although somewhat projected but still shadow work and that's in Mormon chapter 617 the famous lament where the Nephites are essentially getting slaughtered on the battlefield and their 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 leader is watching this you know Moroni and Mormon there and he's going oh ye fair ones how could ye have departed from the ways of the lord and being one of those people in fact being their leader and probably responsible for why they were in that position in the first place and nevertheless being able to call it out and saying you know this was a result of having departed from the ways of the Lord. This was on us. You know, my people are getting slaughtered and I had previously seen them as righteous. And now I can see that they were not. And so he's calling it out. So that's sort of like a little integration, right? Because he's one of those people.
1: So Morgan, now that we know what the shadow is and why we would want to do this work, how do we do it? How is it that you help people do it?
2: That's, I think, the the golden question there are several different ways we've we've talked about some of these methods here is you know just becoming a student of humanity and learning to place yourself into those positions mentally because you could find yourself in those positions but there's also other ways and other methods i mentioned at the beginning that what first got me into psychology was that book the six pillars of self esteem by nathaniel branden What helped me the most in that book is this exercise that Dr. Brandon developed. And so what he would do with his therapy clients is he would give them an unfinished sentence and he would have them just get into a relaxed state and give him six to 10 endings to that sentence as quickly as they could without stopping, without thinking, just basically turn off the conscious mind. So it's unfiltered. It's letting the unconscious answer the question. That's a very powerful exercise. And the the book is full of them. So I started doing them for myself. I was pretty shocked with some of the stuff that was coming up as I was doing these unfinished sentences. I'm remembering some of the more impactful ones. One of them was if I bring 1% more conscious awareness to my work today. And at the time I was working for my dad, I was really lazy I would just kind of go to my dad's work and sit around and wait for him to tell me what to do. And when I was doing this this exercise, a bunch of the answers that came up, if I brought 1% more conscious awareness to my work today, the answers that started coming up as I was doing this were like, I will see what needs to be done before I'm asked to. And just like really simple, obvious stuff like that, which seems very obvious and stupid. But then when I got to work that day, everything that needed to be done was known to me. To the unconscious, to the shadow. And I know that sounds a little goofy, but it was like I was experiencing a new world. Just that in itself can create some pretty significant shifts, I think, and and help us to start integrating and help us to, to get a deeper understanding of of what's inside of us. I was working with a client this week who talked about having anger around this particular issue. And so the the stem, the stem, sentence stem that I gave this client was, if this anger in me could speak, it might say, and then without stopping, without thinking just as quick as she could, she wrote down six to 10 endings to that sentence stem. And it was crazy how much stuff came up. She didn't realize she was feeling anger towards these particular people in her life. She didn't realize that she was feeling anger about particular circumstances in her life all of this anger that she had was in the subconscious it was in the shadow and now suddenly it was on a piece of paper in front of her and she could deal with it and she could accept it and work through it and that's what shadow work really looks like in practice is going through the subconscious and bringing it up and understanding it and integrating it as i've done this with myself and with with so many people over the last couple of years is that inevitably really good stuff comes up too that they didn't know was in there. For me, one of the ideas that I found is very helpful in shadow work is the idea of the inner child. Parts of ourselves that get locked away, they stay the age that they were when they got locked away. And so the child that we once were, in a very real way, still lives within us as adults. I mentioned earlier when we when we get triggered and we go into a tantrum, we experience shadow possession. In a very real way, that is yourself as a child taking over because that child still lives within your psyche as a part that's been cut off. One of the important things we do in shadow work is to get back in touch with that inner child. I'll tell you about an experience I had a couple of years ago. I devoted an entire summer to working with my inner child. So every day I was doing the sentence STEM exercises. Things like when I was five years old, when I was nine years old, I felt things like that. As I did this, I got more and more in touch with this child locked away in my shadow. And then some really fascinating and deeply healing things started happening. One of them was I was watching TV and... One of the late night hosts, I can't remember who it was, but they do this bit every year around Halloween where they tell parents to tell their kids that they ate all their Halloween candy and then film the kids freaking out. And then they submit it to the show and everybody laughs at it. And I hate that stuff. I hate when adults laugh at kids' feelings. I can't stand it. I've never liked that. Some of these clips came up on YouTube or whatever, and I was just so angry. And I was just saying like, I can't believe people do this. I can't believe in this day and age, people still think that this kind of entertainment is okay. And as I got more and more angry, I suddenly heard, and this is going to sound crazy, but I literally heard a child's voice from inside of me say, I get angry so I don't get sad. And as soon as I heard that, I experienced this emotional shift. And all this anger disappeared and I just started sobbing like a baby. And for several minutes, I just sobbed and let all of this sadness out. When I came to, I just I felt so much lighter and I felt so much more integrated because here was this this part of myself, this sad child that once was me that got locked away and got a protective shell of anger around it. And because of this work I was doing with these sentence exercises, I had started to chip away at that shell and brought it to the surface. If you ask anybody that's known me long enough, I used to be a very angry person. Since that moment, I have not been nearly as angry as I used to be. And I've realized that so many of the things that would bring up my anger, it's actually more appropriate to mourn those things.
1: Are you mournful then?
2: I am much more mournful now than angry. I don't want to give the impression that I went from being angry to depressed because it's not depression. It's just an appropriate sadness when that is called for. And that's been a a very significant change. So that's one of many things that happened that summer as I did this shadow work. In that instance, there was this child part of me that had been cast into the shadow and had been reintegrated. And from that moment on, I became much more adventurous and much more spontaneous. Remember, I said at the beginning, there's this idea that the shadow contains everything bad about ourselves. And that's, it's just not true. It's everything that gets exiled and rejected from ourselves. That's the shadow, both compulsions for evil that we've been talking about, but it's also everything that gets locked away as collateral damage, our curiosity, our spontaneousness, our adventurousness, all of these good and wholesome qualities of the child get locked away with everything else as we grow up and parts of ourselves get exiled through the various experiences we go through. At the end of that summer, I went to a lake with some friends. We just went to to have a day of like swimming and hanging out on the beach and stuff. While I was swimming, I discovered that this lake had a lot of salamanders in it. And so I was like swimming down and catching salamanders, just like I did when I was a kid. And there was this kid on the beach that was too afraid to swim. I have no idea who this kid was, but he was building a sandcastle. And he asked me to like bring him salamanders. So over the course of this afternoon, I'm like diving down and like bringing this kid, these salamanders and he's putting them in his castle and we're having a lot of fun. And I was just like carefree and curious and playing with salamanders and like playing with this this kid that I didn't know. And I'm sure from the parent's perspective, it was kind of creepy. Like, okay, who's this 30 year old bearded guy that's giving salamanders to my kid. But from my perspective, I just realized that so much of me that had been packed away through doing this shadow work had re-emerged and was reintegrated. That's just one experience from my life that kind of shows how powerful and necessary this work is. Because on the one hand, it's this preemptive repentance, like you were talking about, Riley, and it's being prepared to handle our own evil before we're in a circumstance that would call it forward. But it's also about recovering everything that we've lost along the way. And it kind of plays both roles and makes us a more whole, complete, better person from both of those fronts.
0: And and that's, I guess, maybe the difference between shadow recognition and shadow integration is, you know, it's one thing to see them and then, okay, now what are you going to do about it? And it's so unique listening to you tell your own personal experience because, What I hear is the way that you integrated this inner child and the aspects that you thought had been locked away or that were locked away functionally was to go dive for salamanders. That's not a prescription for anyone to integrate their shadow. Oh, go dive for salamanders. But that's the work that you did that brought that inner child back into your consciousness, right? Was to actually just go dive for salamanders and, and you know, participate in this kid's joy. It is interesting to me, you brought up the point and I agree completely that a parent's we're probably immediately suspicious of this. Okay. And you, you, you can, you can conjure up all the reasons why from a modern perspective. And I totally get that. But at the same time, it does reveal also that there is this collective unconscious shadow that we impose upon kids as they grow up to be inherently, whether it's suspicious or leery or whatever, whatever words you want to use. And then that grows with us in through adulthood. Like if you were. Not participating in the integration of your inner child and were instead your normal persona, which is a 30 year old adult male, you would have seen what you can only in retrospect see the adults probably feeling at that moment. Like, (laughs) (laughs) but you weren't in that mode. You were in your child mode, you know, and that's, that's interesting. So I do think there's a difference between recognition and integration and and the ways that we implement this process of integration is unique to each individual, right? I mean, we kind of have to figure out what that is for, for all of us.
2: Absolutely. And, you know, to, to tie this again back to the alchemy episode we did last year, that's what was happening. That in, in some union circles, they call the inner child the golden child. That's the gold that comes from this alchemical process of digging down into the unconscious, bringing up everything that's there, and rectifying it, and understanding it, and putting it in its proper place. And then you have access to this gold now. That you didn't have before because it was locked away it was buried in the shadow
0: one word you mentioned earlier was recovering recovering these aspects of yourself and i think that actually brings to point something we really haven't talked about at all in this discussion but i think belongs is is this idea of projection and i don't want to completely change topic but i want to bring out the idea that when you recover something it can either be because it was exiled into somebody else you've projected that aspect of your unconscious into somebody else or you're recovering it from deep within in a place where it had been hidden away, you know, that inner sanctum.
2: Yeah.
1: I noticed that it it turns out that we are panning for gold, but I understand why you said no earlier. Now that it's been fully explained, yes, we are panning for gold, but our gold is not your gold. There is that, right?
2: That's right. Yes. Yes. Maybe the panning analogy is apt.
1: Only with the full explanation.
2: Yeah. Unlike literal panning for gold, we're not throwing out the pebbles. We're keeping those too because they're part of the whole.
1: I can't help but think of Rob Bell's sermon, if you can call it that. It's like a stand-up comedy that turns into a sermon. It's on YouTube. It's called An Introduction to Joy. And it's about Ecclesiastes, the meaninglessness of life that's translated vanity in the King James Version. Thinking of you mournful rather than angry, but not really like, your whole life is you're mournful, right? That's not who and what you are, Morgan. That's not how you show up here, even. But this idea that you come to learn to embrace all of it. This was the message, I think, that Rob Bell was trying to get across with an in Introduction to Joy. Being mournful doesn't mean being depressed or sad. Joy includes mournfulness. You have a fullness of joy, right? You're this little boy, this golden child, who's also mournful. There's also this golden child, and it's all there, and it's all part of you, right?
2: Yeah, exactly. I think that this ties into the Sermon on the Mount, when at the very end, Jesus says, be therefore perfect. And I'm sure everyone has heard by now that there are better translations, that rather than perfection, it's more about wholeness. And that's what shadow work is all about. Like was said earlier, it's not about inviting darkness into our lives. It's about defragmenting the darkness that's already there so that it doesn't take over us anymore and we become one whole, complete person.
0: I think that you were on, Morgan, when we talked about the alchemy of Beatitudes and we started talking about the temple ritual and how really, the at least from a mystical perspective, the temple liturgy is about uniting the opposites into one great whole and, and seeing them holistically and you know, they're represented by perhaps a divine masculine and divine feminine, but really the, the culmination of the entire temple liturgy and worship is in that ceiling room where the masculine and feminine come together, which can easily be seen as the binary parts of any described virtue or, or personality trait. So, you know, whether it's light and dark, health and sickness, virtue and vice, male and female, whatever it is, the integration of all of those parts into one great whole is kind of that work of inner transformation that's symbolized in the temple. No. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Morgan, I think we're coming up towards the end here and some great insights, especially for me, thinking about this process of repentance. And, you know, it's been pointed out many times on this program that the LDS Dictionary definition of repentance is a fresh view about God, ourselves and the world. And I think this process of integrating our shadow is really the process of seeing the world in in this fresh way, this new way. It gets me somewhat excited to start doing a little more shadow work, not just on the things that I've done, but on the things that I've felt or been tempted to do. And can't help but consider as well that the temptation of Christ may have been him seeing his shadow, you know, and not to take it in another direction, but it just seems like, you know, that there's a correlate there. So Morgan, sure, appreciate you being on the program. Anything else you want to say about either what you're doing or how you might be able to help others who are looking to do some of this work on their own?
2: yeah, absolutely. So, like I mentioned earlier, over the past year or so, I've kind of explored this opportunity to help people with their shadow work and to be a coach through the process. Where that has ultimately led to is I'm actually in the process of joining an established coaching practice. we'll We'll put the website. It's called Everyday Seven. It's the numeral seven. We'll put the website in the show notes. Like I mentioned, I'm in the process of joining. As of recording, my bio and schedule is not up on their website yet, but it will be soon. If anybody's interested in just having a chat with me and seeing how I can help with this process of integrating the shadow and gaining all of those benefits of enjoying a more holistic and balanced and whole life, I would love to talk to you. So you'll be able to reach me on the Everyday7 website soon as of recording. It will be soon.
1: Perfect. We'll make sure to add that to the notes. Well, Morgan, I hope to have you back on the show soon. Let's not wait a year. (laughs) Absolutely. I'd love to be back soon. Thanks for joining us. Well, thanks, Morgan. And for
0: Latter-day Contemplation, I'm Riley Risto. And I'm Christopher Hurtado. I hope you have a great week. Thanks, everyone.